Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Later on, I'll be talking to the hugely successful Irish musician and songwriter Ruth Ann Cunningham, who scored her first hit in the US when she was just 19 years of age. And she's written songs with massive artists, including John Legend, Niall Horan and Britney Spears. She came into the studio to chat to me about her amazing career ahead of her performance at the Kaleidoscope Festival in County Wicklow this weekend. I'll also be talking to Sarah Phillips from the Transgender Equality Network Ireland and Clodagh Leonard, chairperson of Dublin Pride, about this year's Pride events and about the issues facing LGBTQ people in Ireland at the moment. But before all that, I'm joined by Irish Times social affairs correspondent Kitty Holland to talk about a few stories that caught our eye this week. Kitty, thank you very much for coming in. We've had a couple of stories from St Luke's Hospital in Kilkenny this week. And the first one is that a letter was sent out to say that, signed by four consultants there, to say that they wouldn't be performing abortions in the hospital and they wouldn't also be allowing for training of staff in the hospital around that. So clearly this is one of the many uh, teething problems, I suppose, with the legislation that came in on January 1st. What was your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I saw that they kind of dressed it up in terms that they don't have the resources and they don't have a gynaecology ward, which to my mind actually seems amazing that in a place that does maternity services, they don't have a gynaecology ward. But um, I mean, it's clear that it's 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 a barrier being put up to women in the area. And, you know, we see the same thing happening in America where, you know, it's becoming a geographical lottery about whether you can access abortions. Um, but the fact is, you know, I mean, we voted for this. Um, it's the law of the land. They, um, and, and women need these services. And it's just, frankly, shocking that doctors would be putting up barriers. Doctors putting up barriers to women's access to health care. Yeah. I mean, this is not the local priest or the local, you, you know, the concerned school principal. This is doctors who understand this stuff. So, I mean, I think it needs to be faced down. It can't be allowed to, it can't be allowed to happen elsewhere. And, you know, people need to just, I mean, to quote the young people, people need, doctors need to get with the programme now and just accept whether they like it or not that these services are legally, they're obliged to provide them on the premises, whether they want to personally or not, but they should not, must not, cannot, and it mustn't be putting up barriers to women access. Um, just to say as well that one of the signatories actively campaigned against uh, the repeal of the Eighth yeah. Amendment as well. So one of these doctors was a, was a um, an anti choice ca- campaigner. Um, but unfortunately for St Luke's Hospital, it was in the news again uh, this mm. week with a story that Paul Cullen, our health editor, had um, showing that women had undergone gynaecological exploratory work without their consent in the same hospital. Um, and Paul Cullen spoke to Ray, Professor Ray O'Sullivan, one of the signatories actually of to that letter, letter we just yeah. spoke about. Um, and he said he felt he didn't need consent for this. The women didn't know it was happening. Um, he There's a quote from him that says that, uh, you know, he felt sort of a bit stymied by the HSE because you had to mind your P's and Q's all the time to be innovative in the hospital. Kind of shocking, really, it's isn't gobsmacking it? gobsmacking to think that there could be an attitude that you don't need a person's consent to carry out such invasive exploratory or experimental, shall we even say, um, procedures on women. And, and again, it just sort of speaks to an, uh, an attitude to women that's still out there, which um, we can't pretend, you know, in lovely middle class liberal Dublin that every, everything is um, everything in the garden is rosy for women. It's absolutely not and shocking. And it's a real it's a reminder that, you know, 
th- these things have to be fought for every day. Respect, respect, respect. And, and do not treat me like a piece of meat. It sort of reminds me of the Scali report, the cervical mm. cancer, where, you know, that showed up all these different attitudes from consultants and the remarks that were said to women. We just can't forget that being a woman in the health services is something that you have to kind of be vigilant about. Yeah, well, being a woman in today's world yeah. is something you have to be vigilant about. You know, we see the, the attitudes to women in terms of sexual violence and domestic violence and the way the guards deal with it and the way the, the judiciary deals with it and the way the establishment in general deals with women and um, and how that percolates down to um, women's lives being in danger. And, you know, and we see it in the medical profession and we see it in the way women are treated in the maternity services and how women every day have to fight to be respected and respected at work and respected within their own families and respected in their interaction with the services. Yeah, it's 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 widespread and it's appalling and, you know, and feminism still has a lot, a lot of battles to win. Yeah, I mean, and if you turn it around, I'd be thinking about the men in my life, men I love, if they were in hospital and somebody was trying to do exploratory work on their penis or uh, put things up their penis, I would be appalled if they weren't asked for consent. But somehow that happened. Um, yeah. The hospital stopped uh, the tests... It was, it was the nursing staff, in fact, from yeah. Paul Cullen's piece that um, highlighted the fact that these women weren't asked for consent and then the, the hospital put a stop to the tests. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the quotes from Professor O'Sullivan show that he really didn't see a problem with not asking for consent. So it's a very good report if anyone hasn't seen it, just to look up and, um, yeah, just be aware of the kind of things that do go on. Moving on to another issue this week that caught our eye. Um, the Women's World Cup is coming to, I think the quarterfinals are on soon, and Megan Rapinoe is one of the huge stars of uh, American soccer and who they could possibly win the whole thing. But she's not a Trump fan, Kitty. And she was asked, uh, and we have a clip of it, I think, she was asked about the prospect of being invited to the White House, potentially, if uh, America wins. Excited about um, going to the White House? <laughs> not going to the fucking White House. <laughs> no, I'm not going to the White House. That's, okay. We're not going to be invited. You're not going to be invited? I doubt it. And uh, yes, yeah, so she was not happy. She said, uh, I'm not fucking going to the White House. <laughs> which, you, which I just think is brilliant because you don't really, and although there's a lot of people obviously uh, criticising Trump and saying out loud, but someone of her stature in the sporting world saying that to camera, I just think, fair Yeah, well, she's just saying it as it is, straight out, no no mincing her words. And yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful to hear that. And of, of course, thing. Trump responded as he does uh, via Twitter. But first of all, he added the wrong Megan Rapinoe was someone else and I think she's got loads of followers she was very gracious about it but um, basically saying you don't don't count your chickens before they hatch you know you haven't won yet and uh, given out to her um, but that's, that's Oh how dare a woman expected. speak truth yeah. to power you know how dare she Exactly so fair play to Megan she's our one of our women of the week anyway for just saying it like it is as you say and, and not putting up with any nonsense and anyway who wants to go to the White House would be served Burger King or McDonald's oh. which is the spread he puts on for these amazing people it's just my son it's just Dying to get to one of those parties. <laughs> <laughs> to finish, what else is going on in your world in terms of culture or arts? Are you binging on any Netflix or podcasts or anything? Well, I mean, I'm evangelical about this Netflix, and I'm sure most people have heard of it and probably watched it as well. But some people still haven't. Um, when they see us, um, it, it's it's a real life drama about what happened with the Central Park Five, five young kids who were um, stitched up essentially by the New York Police Department for. A um, a rape and violent assault on a woman and of course the woman was white and the children because they were 14 to 17 at the time 14 to 16 at the time were black and Latino so it's it's a really really powerful um, watch a really difficult watch but like oh it's essential viewing if you're interested in race relations and there's also a bit of a Trump storyline in that too because oh there is there is he had views on it and quite you know they don't they don't um, they're not subtle about the Trump it's it's there front and center for the, for those moments in the in the drama it's uh, they it's there and it's a yeah it's a reminder of how power can be abused and how it's um, and how it can really really inflict such pain damage and devastation on vulnerable communities when it when it is abused as it so often is thank you very much kitty Holland, yeah. for coming in My guest now is a superstar in her own right, but she's more often the brains behind the hits of other superstars like Niall Horan, One Direction and Britney Spears. Ruth Ann Cunningham grew up in Donamead on Dublin's north side, singing and writing songs from a very young age. I think she was seven or eight when she started. And she joined the Billy Barry Stage School when she was 12. 
She began her career as a professional songwriter when she was just 17 and got her big break two years later when she co-wrote the Billboard hit Too Little Too Late, performed by the American singer Jojo. Ruth Ann has been working to establish her own career as a performer for the last two years and was in Dublin ahead of this weekend's Kaleidoscope Festival. She came into studio and we spoke about the festival. We also spoke about her extraordinary career, what it's like to be friends with famous people and her encounters with larger-than-life celebrities like Beyonce and Jay-Z. Ruth Ann, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Thank you for having I'm me. I'm very excited looking at your CV so far. You know, <laughs> oh, you've my written CV. All, yeah. <laughs> so do we even say CV? It's probably <laughs> I don't the wrong know what word. it is. Your backstory. I don't know. My backstory. Um, five songs for Niall Horan's debut album, including the single Slow Hands. You've written for John Legend and Britney Spears as well. What was it like working with all those people? Um, well, sometimes you don't get to work with them. I didn't get to actually work with Britney. Um, she tweeted my name, though, so that's like as yeah. close as I'm, I'm happy exactly. with that. I'm and happy then, with that. You know, I'm sure she knows who I am. Perfect. <laughs> um, but uh, John Legend, amazing. When I work with John, it's like he's playing the piano and you're sitting and it's almost like having a private concert because every time you write a verse or something, he likes to play it back to you and he's kind of looking at you. So it's like you're being kind of, not serenade, not in a creepy way, just in a real like, <laughs> is this going to affect the hearts of millions of women? And I'm like, yes, I think that's good. <laughs> and, um, and then um, Niall, obviously, I mean, from the minute I started working with Niall I'd, always, I'd obviously worked on some of the One Direction stuff but I'd never met him and then I met him one night and he asked me about writing for you know for the next One Direction album and then we started working together for that and then he texted me a few months later saying I'm doing my solo album now and I obviously was a bit like I have no idea what any of these guys are going to do solo mm. but I went in the studio he had a book of ideas he had chords he was like oh I came up with these chords and I have this title idea and I have and he was like I want to do like the Eagles Fleetwood Mac Damien Rice I was like oh my god so exciting to be a part of an album like that because as a songwriter a lot of the time it's like we need fast up tempo pop you know like the hits and it was so cool with Niall to get to just be about like the art and Ruthann, how do you get to be doing that? Because that's like almost in a way that's the songwriter's dream because it's, it means constant work. So it means working with artists that your work is going to be out there in such a yeah. huge way. Yeah. What's your backstory? Um, basically, I mean, I don't really remember, but I started writing songs from seven. I just, I knew song structure. I don't really know how. I knew what a chorus was. I knew what a verse was. I was obsessed with singing. Um, I was studying Mariah Carey at 10, like with nobody telling. So I didn't have pushy parents that were like, you must play the piano. The piano was lying around when I was 12. I started playing stuff, just copying stuff by ear. Um, so and my parents were just really supportive of that. So every time I wrote a song at seven, I, I started actually by changing the words to back to some songs for Mother's Day and Father's Day. So like I'd be like, you are the best daddy to like a back, you know, to a melody that was already there. And then um, but my parents would always be like when they'd hear one, they'd go, oh, write another one, write another one. And it was that type of encouragement. I'm like, that's amazing. Write another one. So I just kept writing. I had like 400 songs, 500 songs written from by the time I was 16. Terrible songs, most likely. <laughs> um, and then I en- my dad entered a demo of mine into the Jacob song contest and um, and so we, I won that that year. And then that's when I got some media attention. I had a girl band and um, I'd written the song and I'd produced the track. And, and then, uh, yeah, an, a man, an ex-manager who used to manage the script before they were the script um, introduced me to Mark and Danny and they were living in L.A., they weren't a script yet and they were writing and producing for other people. So I kind of became the project, the artist project. So my mum and dad's whole thing was, you can't leave until you have your leave insert. I was like, let me go. It was only a few months. I was 17 and literally the, the day of my last exam, the next day I flew to LA. And then it was kind of like... Um, I'd never co-written a song before. I'd always written by myself. And so... But at this stage, you hadn't any um, anything published yourself. No, nothing. So just, you were... Just, I, I, you know, I think that was my preparation years. You know, when you're just the years of just working on your craft. And I started from so young. I'd been in recording studios from 13. So I kind of, at 17, had a good grasp of how to write a song. I still don't think any of them were any good, but they were almost like, you know, the years of just understanding how to do it. And then on my third day in LA, and I'd never been been away from my parents for that long I'd never been to America and then on the third day I was sat with Billy Steinberg who wrote Like a Virgin Eternal Flame True Colours one of the best lyricists of all time and he sat me in his piano and he had this Grammy for Celine Dion falling into you on the piano and he goes 
play me your stuff. Oh and my I gosh. was just like, but I, but you know what? I would be so nervous now doing that because I'm older and the world has like broken me down. But at, se- <laughs> but at 17, we'll have to talk about yeah, that in a minute. But at 17, I was like, oh yeah, let me play you my my songs. And then the thought of what I played is like this. You know, when you're 17 and you're like, my love song to you. Anyway, so I played him the song and he was like. I like it. You're like Christina Aguilera, but like, you know, a bit Amy Winehouse. You know, Amy Winehouse had just come out. So anyway, he was like, come write with me tomorrow. And the next day we wrote uh, Too Little Too Late with Josh Alexander, which was actually written for me. So I demoed it, but I in my head was thinking of JoJo. I didn't say anything because I didn't want to insult anyone. Or, but I went to the car and I said, that's not for me. That's for JoJo. This song is for JoJo. And then two years later at 19, as I was developing Still What Mark and Danny as an artist... Jojo, Too Little Too Late was released and then my whole life changed. How did it change? Tell, tell me oh what, that, what, what happens in that situation. You're 19. Yeah. You, you're, you've been obviously, like you say, honing your craft but then you write a song that actually... Actually becomes like one of the biggest songs of that year and, and um, had the biggest jump in Billboard chart history at the time from like 60... Because it got to number 90 in the Billboard and I got the magazine. I was like, my name, I'm number 90. Like my name was, was in the Billboard magazine. Delighted with my life. And then it just got to 63 the next week. And then I remember I was sitting, I was back home in Ireland, sitting in my bed, and I got all these emails through saying, your song has just had the biggest jump in chart history from 63 to 3. It's number two. It's right behind Justin Timberlake, My Love, which I loved that song. And I just remember being in the bed and I was, and all these radio reviews were coming in and all the all the DJs were like, in America were like, we're going to play this, whatever. And I just remember feeling like so excited that, and then I was in New York in a cab a few months later and it came on the radio. And like I just, you know, them like little moments that you have. And then it all kind of becomes a blur of like, I just remember a lot of requests to do that song again. <laughs> just can you do that again? Really? Well, I got a publishing deal. Then it was like money. You're 19. I don't come from a lot of money. So for me, it was like uh, it funded me getting to just do my American trips and go back and forth. And, and I got a, you know... You, yeah, having a hit that size so young was an amazing experience, but it also was a lot of pressure. And how did you deal with the pressure? Uh, I didn't. Because <laughs> I, I was 19, I was being flown around everywhere by myself. So Norway, you know, Copenhagen, Miami, Orlando, 19-year-old just in the rooms with people I didn't know. Every every other day was a different new person. So I was I was actually really lonely because I found it all... And I found... I, I didn't... There was... You can't go to college really to learn how to be a songwriter. You can learn how to write songs, but there's no college of songwriting of like what's because there's so much involved with what's the industry like. It's like being straight into sent straight into a working envi- into a work environment that you have no idea what the etiquette is. So you're learning from people that you see and people were arriving 4 hours late and men, you know, there were certain misogynistic things going on and you're trying to learn your place and all that and there's no one really like this is the way that it is. There's not that many rules, so you're trying to figure out your own rules. It was just so those years I call like the college years for me of what how to be in the music industry, not even just as a songwriter, as a singer, as anything, just like, okay, those are my four or five years after I had a hit of like being in the best rooms around the best people and understanding how to write songs better and also how to be how you how you live life as a song and how to be more professional I presume yeah. because you've seen some really bad examples of behaviour yeah. that you maybe didn't want to emulate 100% I was in I was very proudly in, in the Billy Barry stage school and I learned about professionalism from a young age as in like you know just being a good person to work with being someone people want to work with again and um, if you don't get the audition, being happy for the people that do and learning to deal with disappointment. So there was a lot of things I learned from a young age. And then when you walk into that environment and there's people just doing whatever they want and artists doing, you know, famous people just thinking they can do whatever. Um, I'm just glad that I had the way I was raised in Dublin and with my parents and the way that I learned how to be. I'm glad that I didn't come from a different background because then I could have gone down a very different path. Was there a thing, I, I presume when you were writing all these things, songs as a kid, you kind of, uh, you had the hairbrush, let's say, the cliched hairbrush or toothbrush in the mirror yeah. singing and it was going to be you up there doing the thing. 
did did you um, mind that, or when you when you got into the rooms and you were now sort of writing songs for other people to yeah. do? Did that was that a problem, or were you happy enough? Yeah, I think it, it, with JoJo, I wasn't like I want to sing that because you knew it was because I knew I had a feeling. I just I trust my gut, and I knew that wasn't my artist stuff. I think that there was times where yeah, I'd be frustrated, especially if a record label would sit me down and play me a singer that couldn't sing and go, listen, she can't really sing. And she can't really write. But if you could just be her and you can sing the demo or even being left in on certain records where my voice is still there and they use certain... That was a bit frustrating because I'm like, well, then why don't you just sign me? But I think that everything happens in the right time. And the type of artist I wanted, I want, I am and wanted to be was someone who wrote, who, who is like that Adele, Ed Sheeran, Amy Winehouse, who writes the records fully and doesn't have a team of songwriters and puppets and this is what you're going to wear. And at 17, 18, I didn't have the life experience to write an album yet that I could really truly stand behind. I would have been on the pop puppet machine and I didn't want to be on that machine. So I, for me it was like trusting the process and understanding that you know you have to to learn my craft be up against the best be in the best rooms and learning all the time and then when it came to finally finding my own voice it happened by accident it was like the years I spent in LA as I grow like five years I came back because uh, I was really uninspired and I wrote an album in three weeks and everyone I played it to was like this is you there's no one else who could sing these songs this is your voice this is you and so then it all clicked and it was like ah and then it also clicked of like ah now I know how I can do both right. I can do both so what happened then did you get signed what's the what's yeah the... so I got signed to uh, well I I've been around a lot of record labels and to be honest the major label thing isn't really for me not not from what I've seen of the conveyor belt of like when you're hot you're hot and when you're not they dump you so um, I stayed independent but I signed to an indie label and like which Adele did and a few of my favourite artists signed to indie labels first and basically it's a way for you to keep your masters um, keep ownership um, be really in, involved in steering the ship and all the creative decisions but you also have a record company that market you and, and help find you teams around you and outsource teams radio teams and marketing teams so it's a label but it's just indie which means we don't have a, as big of a budget as Justin Bieber has but we have enough where we can get the music out yeah so I'm signed to an indie label through um, it's Andrew Lloyd Web- Webber's sons Alistair and Billy they started uh, an indie label for artists like what's me what's it called? The Other Songs and it runs through Cobalt which is obviously a massive um, record label yeah. it really is interesting hearing you talk about your college years there yeah. where you're learning because it's I mean it's like and then you came out graduated yes. and you knew all this stuff <laughs> yeah. that you weren't going to get burnt out you weren't going to get used and exploited and yeah. you know tossed away like yesterday's you yeah. know fish and chip wrapper and you were actually going to make a hopefully a long term career in the industry that you love and still keep doing your songwriting yeah. which is obviously bread and butter stuff as well yeah, I'm, I'm 13 years now professionally doing this and have you know that this has been my I've made my living from this for that long and whenever I do have days where I'm like oh this is like the toughest job ever I do have to think about that that I have been doing this and have been able to sustain it it's a very difficult industry to sustain um, a lifestyle in because you can have hits and then you're broken then you're and then it's, it's just it's a whole thing and I've been on every end of, this, of the spectrum of it but I keep in there because I love making music uh, it's all I can do <laughs> and um, and now getting to add performer to that is something that all along the years of songwriting everyone who would meet me even now would be like why, you're, why aren't you a singer and I'm like well I am I'm just I'm just getting my I'm getting my stuff together Everyone has a journey. So for me now to get to perform um, songs as well as write them, it's like the ultimate dream. So tell me about Superman. This is yes. uh, your latest release. My You've latest. had Love Again before that, yeah. um, which gained a million streams in, in the first month and mm-hmm. featured on New Music Friday, which is the Spotify playlist that you really want to be on. It's a big yeah. deal to get on that. So yeah. you've had a bit of traction. But yes. Superman is a, is a particularly personal song. Yeah, Superman... Um, came from it was written before the Me Too movement which is so interesting to me because I wrote it a few years ago Um, but I yeah I wrote it about basically the mentors in my life that I've had not my dad my dad is the best just putting it out there um, the mentors I've had in my life that kind of uh, took advantage of their position with me um, more so emotionally when you're a young female and you're in LA and you're in these rooms there's a lot of powerful men around and um 
you look up to them, you put them on these pedestals. I dated people, famous people, whatever, Hollywood flings. You put, you know, you kind of put these people on this pedestal, their status and their money and their power. And I started realizing that some of these people were very toxic for me and emotionally abusive and manipulating. And and I wanted to write a song that was an anthem about you know, realizing when you put people on this pedestal and then realizing who they really are and, and what effect they're having on you and an anthem to kind of say, like, I know who you really are now and I'm and I'm walking away from it. And my favorite line is, Superman, who's going to save your soul when you ain't so super anymore? And obviously we're seeing now there's massive consequences to, to this. And it's funny that I wrote it before all this stuff started because it's not like I'm like, oh, you know, I hate men. I've also had some unbelievably fantastic men in my life and mentors in my life. This is for just the bad ones. <laughs> of which there are a few. I have songs about the good ones and then I have songs and about the bad listen, ones. Listen, I presume you now have some very close friendships with some very famous people. What's that like? Can you tell us about some of them? I would say because famous people, oh, I don't know how to really say this. Um, I think that with friendships with famous people, um, they're very busy. <laughs> Everything is always about them, which is amazing. Um, and so it's not like I'm sitting, you know, every, it's not like I'm calling, you know, these people all the time saying, how are you? How's it going? Sometimes you go right with them and you have a great time in the room with them. And then you might text or tweet or Instagram or whatever, but you might not see him again until you're riding with him again. Sometimes, you know, Niall will go, oh, I have a spare ticket for this Kanye show. Do you want to come? And you go to Kanye and you hang out and whatever. I wouldn't say I have any that are like I'm super best, bestie, bestie with. Um, but I also think that's a good thing because when you're riding with people, sometimes if you get too close, it's difficult to ride together because you're just like, oh, we just go down the pub. Oh, come on, we'll just go to the cinema. So it's kind of good to keep a healthy friendship balance where when you see each other it's the best and you catch up and you have a laugh but what about celebrity encounters though just Mm. crack just like going i can't pinching yourself and say i can't believe i'm here doing this any any of those oh my god so many of them uh the best one i have i have a few but the best one i have is probably um when i walked in i was hung over from a grammy party uh like nine years ago and I, you know, had brought my friend Ed, who's an English writer with me. And I was like, oh, we're going to go. We were getting invited to all the parties and all the VIP. But they'd always be huge. Like you wouldn't, like you'd be standing beside Katy Perry. But, you know, there'd be so many people. You wouldn't even really get to talk to anyone. You got drunk on free drink. So I was just like, yes, 2021, like, woo, drinking, hungover, threw on some clothes, was told it was a Rock Nation brunch. There was going to be 40 people there. It was at this really low-key um, spot in L.A., so I was like, well, I'm going to roll up. I threw on some, just thinking of the outfit now. So. <laughs> and I walk in and there's Beyonce and Jay-Z are greeting everyone because it's there. It's his what? label. But I didn't think that they'd be there. So Beyonce goes, hi, welcome. Oh, and, and Jay-Z said hi to my friend Ed and he didn't know who he was. He's like, hi, mate. Hi, mate. And, uh, and then I, so I'm getting over the fact that Beyonce has just said hi to me and I was obsessed with Jesse. So I'm like, Hi, Beyonce. Oh, she And then I walked in and Ed goes, oh, that was a nice lad. I go, that was, do you know who that was? That was Jay-Z. He goes, no, no. I was was like, so anyway, then we stroll in. Shana Paul, you know, Shana Paul sitting there grabbing it. There's a buffet and he's just grabbing some chicken. And I'm standing beside him. I'm like, oh, there's Sean Paul. And, uh, and then, and then I walk out with my bowl of chicken and my buffet, whatever. And Rihanna's there. And oh, she's and these are all still they, these are at peak their peak like, and times. You are you and are a songwriter, yeah. And, and they're all these people who are presumed must yeah. be heroes of yours in terms yes. of writing. And I'd had some like, but no, no, I wasn't famous. So no, knew who I but was. But that's what I mean. But yeah. yeah. I was there, so anyway, I'm sitting beside. There's a there's a seat, and Ed's like, "Well, we're definitely sitting over there." So I'm like, <laughs> I like Ed. So I'm sit, yeah, I'm sitting, I'm sitting with Ed, right? And Rihanna's kind of like this way, facing away from me, but she talks to him. Ed starts speaking obnoxiously loud, so hoping that she'll hear him, you know, like, oh right, like, yeah, like, this is so sick, like. <laughs> and so she's turning around looking at him, and then someone comes over, starts talking to her, and then goes, Ruth. And it's this A&R, Chris Anacute, who was Katie Perry. So he's like, Ruth, Ruth the truth, because Ruth, Randy Jackson calls me Ruth the truth. He's like, Ruth the truth, man. And so... He then, I'm ta- I'm in the circle then with Rihanna and him and me. And he's like, man, your records. And she's just just standing watching us. And I'm like, oh my God, like, what do I do? Do I say hi to her? Like, what do I do? I've been in so many situations like that. And I'm like, 
And then Beyonce was with her friends. And you know when you're like trying to look over. And Rita Ora, I had written with at the time. So she was like, babe, she looks so amazing, babe. So I got, she was signed to them. So I was chatting to her. And then Beyonce's just, um, Viva La Vida came out. And she was just like dancing with her friends. And I was staring at her. <laughs> And then I was like, stop staring at her, like, be cool. I was like pretending to be at the bar, but I was literally staring at her, just like mimicking along with her, trying to like get in the group. But then she didn't see me. So, yeah, I left. But yeah, stuff like that has happened to me. And I was in Quincy Jones's house having dinner with Quincy and like just. Who's quite an interesting character, let's say. Well, he said, yeah, I'm not. Well, I I don't know if I can say this, but he said that he goes, he goes, uh, where are you from, girl? Where are you from? Oh, did roots? he talk about Bono and stuff? Or? Yeah, he said that we're right. Ra- he goes, I go, we're I'm, I'm thing, Irish, yeah. Quincy. He goes, no, you ain't. You got you got some gumbo on you, girl. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I 99.9, like, dad. I'm and also, full, that's a bit yeah, racist full. anyway. But he's allowed. He's allowed. <laughs> and then he said, man, Irish people are so racist, man. And I'm like, well, I'm not. No, but he, he's, he, he's pulls that out all time and time again. He's obviously on he, that trip. He hasn't yeah. been here. He said, when was, I said, when was the last time you were mm, there, Quincy? Yeah. He goes, we need to like get him the back. 1965. I'm like, come on, Quincy, you got to come back. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't any black people here except yeah, Quincy when he arrived. I said, we are the nicest people. I said, like, no, that's not even. He said, you you got to be something else. You got to have something else in you. I'm like, Quincy, I promise you, I'm Irish and I love you. So... <laughs> But, yeah. So a lot of them celebrity encounters. Which I've are had so many. Good Too many. dinner party, party stories. Yeah. You're playing Kaleidoscope. I am. So Kaleidoscope, I'm going to be there. I'm dying to see. I'll have <gasps> to um, look at the uh, 2 p.m. 2 p.m. Main stage. Brilliant. Because that's after my events, which are in the morning. Oh, amazing. So I will bring my kids over. and Because yes. they write little songs. So I'm going to oh, tell them. what age are they? Hard work. They're 10. Yes. So, um, that's when I'll it say, begins. Yes, exactly. So but I say it doesn't just happen. You spent all these years yeah. working so hard. There's no overnight successes no. in this business you know even when you when people just seem like they've come out of nowhere they've worked for years exactly you know whether they started at four yeah or whether they started at like 20 there's like you still the work has to be put in but that's so cool that you yeah. can come down with your kids but kaleidoscope is a sort of a new kind of festival because it's really aimed at families and children yeah. so usually in body and soul and electric picnic between the ages of 12 and 18 the poor kids get kind of kicked out and you're not <laughs> allowed to be there by virtue basically it's it's sort of racism against teenagers really <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, saying yeah. we can't handle you you're going to be too uncontrollable yeah. so this one is actually saying parents bring all your children of all ages mm-hmm. and they've catered a whole festival which sounds fantastic it really does everything from roller skating to really nice we're we're doing some podcasts. We're doing some joke telling on stage Amazing. and all sorts of things. So there's going to be really rich stuff going on, yeah. not your usual. And then loads of great music. So you're performing at 2 p.m. Yeah, on I'm so glad to be a part of it, to be honest, because my little nephews, one of them's three, he sings one of my songs, Liquid. He goes, wash, wash away, wash, wash away. And Superman, he goes, Superman, he flies. He's like doing the little bits of the songs. And so for him to be able to come, obviously he'd probably be distracted running around. I don't even yeah. know if he'll be like, no, that's me. But yeah, but he'll be there to be able to have my sisters there and for them to bring their like people, you know, kids that are, I've two 18 month old twins that are going to be able to mm-hmm. be there. So for them to get a chance to see me yeah. and like I'll be on the main stage at 2 p.m., which I think is a great time. The sun will be out. So everyone come down and come say hi. Yeah, and it's only in Wicklow. For people in Dublin, it's really handy because yeah. it's in Blessington. It's also in a, in a place called Rusborough House, which has never had anything like this before. Mm-hmm. So there'll be lots of people who have never been down to the grounds. I and haven't. we'll get to see a beautiful part of yeah. of that county that um, we maybe haven't seen before. It's where all those bait paintings were. And, uh, oh, I'm the, excited The one that the general down. tried to rob. I think that's the house, isn't it? I'm um, excited to go down. It's going to be great fun. Yeah. But listen, I just think your story is so great. <laughs> Thank um, you. I mean, you're inspired by the likes of Aretha Franklin. Franklin and Amy Winehouse and Alicia mm-hmm. Keys, really brilliant songwriters. And yes. you're obviously going to have this long, long career, whether you're front of stage or you're behind writing yeah. for these people. I'll do it. I'll, I'll always sing. I'll always write. I think with my own career, it's just a passion project and I'll sing for 20 people or 20,000. It's not really like I'm not like I have to be the biggest pop star in the world. And then for writing, I'll always write songs. I don't think anyone could stop me. It's like I'll just keep writing. <laughs> what instruments do you actually play then? I play piano. Yeah. And I make tra- I make beats. Okay. Yeah. I- and did you teach yourself piano? Yeah. I started just, uh, actually it was Alicia Keys, I started just listening to her stuff by ear and, and copying her. Um, so I did get some piano lessons after about two years of me. I wrote songs on the piano and then I got some classical lessons, but I realised classical wasn't really for me. I was more the pop, like the weird, thrown in the weird chords that classical people are like, what? You can't do that. That's not One the rule. One last question before you go. Who would you really like to write songs for? Ooh. Oh. Oh, mm. I'd like to have a duet with Lauren Hill. If Amy, bless her soul, was alive, I would have liked to have written for her. 
I mean, and Daniel Caesar and her, I absolutely love their new artists. But um, obviously, I want to write with like Elton John. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's the right. big ones. Well, Ruth, the truth. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Thanks. And uh, maybe we'll have you back again when you're yeah. doing even more things. You can <laughs> tell us all the goss, Thank all the Beyonce so stories. Yes. Thanks a million. Thank you. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. Now, the Dublin Pride Parade is on this Saturday and the theme this year is Rainbow Revolution and it feels like the whole country has been painted in pride colours for the last few weeks and organisers have promised that the parade, which returns to O'Connell Street this year, will be the best yet and is going to top last year's record turnout of 60,000. While there's a lot of joy and fun associated with the Pride Festival, it's also a good time to remember that it's not all rosy in the garden and that there are still many issues faced by LGBTQI people in this country. Clodagh Leonard, Director of Pride Dublin and Sarah Phillips, Chair of Tenny, spoke to me earlier. Clodagh, thanks very much for coming into the Women's Podcast to talk to us about Pride. A very exciting time. Now, the theme this year is Rainbow Revolution. Tell us about that. So it is 50 years now since the um, Stonewall riots um, that happened in Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street in New York City. So what had happened was there was a number of people there that um, continually were arrested and um, and were continually, I guess, oppressed in their society. And um, Marsh B. Johnson in particular, who was a trans woman of colour on that night 50 years ago this week, had had enough and she fought back. And it's seen as a pivotal point in our community. But when we were talking about it as a committee, we were saying that revolutions are so important. They're a moment in time when you decide that something isn't good enough and you decide to create something better out of it. And we were looking into Marsh P. Johnson and we were looking into that whole movement. And we realised that that although it was a pivotal moment when she picked up that bottle and that brick and started, you know, started fighting, it wasn't the apex of the work that she was doing. Hers was based on love and for a long time before that and after that she had uh, welcomed other LGBT young people into her life and we wanted to make sure that this Pride kind of acknowledged all those bits of our community and I am I feel really privileged already that that seems to have happened over the festival. We did, we did a conference on Tuesday and there was a baby on the panel um, and one of the women on the panel was breastfeeding and afterwards the baby got a little bit grumbly and another woman from the audience from the community walked up and took the baby and, and, and started minding her. And I just thought this is the stuff that we need, you know. We've won these massive battles but there's still work to be done and it can only do it in the same way that kind of repeal did if we reach beyond ourselves and we have a rainbow revolution that kind of expands more across any divide that we have and we all move forward together. It feels a lot this year that tr- Pride has really kind of taken over in, in, a, in a great way mm. that you're seeing kind of, you know, noticing the rainbow RT logo and yeah. the flag uh, was flown in the GPO and will be on Dáil Éireann and mm-hmm. there's a real visibility. I mean, I think there has been increasingly, but does it feel like that for you? Yeah, it feels absolutely <laughs> massive. Like it, it's it's a tsunami of, of love and I remember when I went to my first Pride, I was about 17, so it was about 11 years ago and um, I I remember sneaking up from Mayo and seeing all the flags down down the Liffey and just being like this is brilliant like I have somewhere that I don't have to hide and now it feels like the whole city is like that so I hope there's there's young people that are really feeling it and, and seeing post boxes and and that it's uh, yeah making them feel a little bit more at home but everything's not perfect, obviously, as it is with any any community that, you know, struggles with various things. What are the main issues, do you think, still now for LGBTQI community? Um, really, I think a big issue, right, is that in 2015, we had both the Gender Recognition Act and we had marriage equality. And we're almost victims of their successes in that people seem to think that the big ticket items are won. But even in that... If you are, say, a trans woman from another country and you've come here seeking asylum from a state that oppresses you, more often than not, you're put into essentially a detention centre, like you're put into a direct provision centre with cis men. You know, so your identity is not being respected in a place where you're trying to find um, security or even for like LGBT young people in Ireland, the lack of sex education is woeful. It's woeful for all young people, actually. Like I work in in youth work and and there is definitely a gap in the market there, but particularly for young people, um, I think as well, just the access to PrEP, 
the um, the ability for parents. So the only parents at the moment that can be registered both as parents, same sex parents, are Irish women in this new legislation who have found an identifiable Irish donor. So there's loads of people that are left out of that legislation, and we don't seem to see that. You get news headlines that are like, "Oh, fantastic." LGBT parents, same-sex parents can be recognised now, but there are many people that don't fall under that legislation. So I think it's about us coming together and finding the big-ticket messages that we need to get out again, you know. Um, We don't have one thing to hang our hat on at the moment, but I think it's about supporting one another. So tell us about Pride then, back to that, in terms of the events and how some of those things will be highlighted and what are the big um, parts of it that you are looking forward to? Um... Then, well, the parade itself, obviously, because we're back on O'Connell Street, which I'm so excited about. Um, so we will be starting the parade at the Garden of Remembrance and then we'll be going to Marion Square, which will have a family friendly event. And we'll also have a quiet area for people that would be overwhelmed by the hustle and bustle. Um, so we're, we are trying this year to be as accessible as possible for all people. So that will be a booze free event. But there will be a number of parties that are happening in town after that. At our Marion Square event as well, we'll have a number of speakers from the community who, so it will be an opportunity for people to learn more about these issues that are affecting our community. And then there'll be plenty of opportunities to party afterwards. So Mother is on, there are parties in Spinster and Nolita, Panty Bar, all of the gay bars in town are going to have their parties. So the George and Street 66. And I would just recommend for people to be around town for the buzz. On that, we have Sarah Phillips on the line, who was Grand Marshal last year at the Pride Parade. So what are your thoughts on it this year and how are you getting involved? Um, well, obviously, this year, um, you know, I'll be marching with Tenny, which obviously last year I didn't get that opportunity to do, uh, Transgender Equality Network Ireland. And we will have uh, quite a large contingent at, at the parade on Saturday. And um, we will also be meeting. We have our kind of breakfast morning, our tea uh, morning in the Royal College of Surgeons from uh, 10 a.m., um, where we have lots of different events going on i know we have face painting and all for the kids and lots of different poster making and stuff like that and um, so yeah we'll be starting that in the morning and then we'll be heading over to the parade and then later on hopefully i'll just be enjoying the, the rest yeah. of the day with my friends um you know in the evening time but but i think the parade is you know it's a great opportunity um for our community and i think it's something that needs to be embraced i do appreciate there there are issues but i think the, the committee in fairness uh, the Pride Committee do a hell of a work to try and balance uh, those issues. And there, there's clearly some criticisms and they, they will always be there sometimes. But they continually improve us and try and listen to people like, you know, we're back on O'Connell Street again this year, which is an amazing, um, you know, uh, change. Because I think I, even I called out that on the stage last year that I felt it was wrong. Um, but, you know, I think also they're listening to the voices of our community, even around corporate involvement, etc. And I think that, you know, the guys do a fabulous job and it's just, it's a tough job and I think they need to be acknowledged for that too. You've um, involved with the trans community for over 20 years and you're a member of the construction industry. Um, tell us about the issues that you uh, would like to talk about. Um, I suppose for me, uh, obviously, uh, the construction industry, uh, Roisin, is a, quite a, a, a male-dominated area and... I suppose for me, one of the things that we find is that there's, first of all, there's not a lot of women in the, in construction. And I know uh, the Construction Industry Federation are consistently working towards increasing numbers of women um, that want to get into construction. And I think for me as a trans woman in construction, I think in, in the way the work I do um, is I'm constantly on building sites and the things are changing. But also, I think there's still an awful lot more work to be done within that area to make it uh, more welcoming for not only women, but also uh, other people such as LGBTQI people to be in that environment because it has great opportunities for employment. And it's got, you know, I know the, the Construction Industry Federation a couple of years ago were talking about that they had the opportunity of another 120,000 uh, jobs over the next number of years mm. and therefore they were going to struggle to fill those in Ireland and therefore they needed to look elsewhere uh, for to um, to fulfil those jobs and, and yet here we have a great opportunity for women specifically 
to to move into these areas and, and create and have a good career. Because we hear these words diversity and inclusion a lot. And, you know, it seems like almost like a lot of people just ticking boxes and making sure that they have some mention of it. But I suppose it's the real changes in attitude and cultures that will make the difference. What what do you think needs to happen in your industry in particular? I mean, as you, as a trans woman going around the building sites, have you had to deal with a lot of really annoying stuff or how, how, how does it work? Um, I think for for me, I think my my own experience is probably more reflective of how other women in the building industry, uh, you know, experienced it as a career. I think the trans issue really, for the best part, I haven't had much bad experience in that sense. Well, that's great. I've heard, I've heard some conversations after the fact where clients or you know uh, people who have brought me into provide my expertise have mentioned afterwards things and comments that have been said which is not good but it's never been uh you know to my face or it's never been physical etc or in 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 the moment and um, but however i do find quite a lot of the time that uh you know my voice is less within the in the industry your expertise is less. You know, I've, I've often told the story of standing on a building site in a meeting of 15 people that I'm the only woman in the room and yet I'm there as the expert and the other 14 people in the room, all men, will discuss whether I'm right or not. Oh, God. Um, you know, so these, <laughs> this is probably more the experience. In fact, one of my clients, a really great guy, uh, has got to the point of starting meetings like that by saying, guys, let's remember who the expert in the room is, you know, and, and that is a Excellent. problem. And I think that is that is a, that goes across the whole of the industry. I don't think it's necessarily uh, specific to the um, construction industry, but I think it prevails more there because, uh, you know, over the years, it has been such a male dominated uh, career. It's been such a male dominated, dominated industry. And it's only now that they're starting to get used to women. Uh, or even, you know, out LGBT people on the building site. Mm. So I think, and, and we all know the anecdotal conversations and jokes that go around over many, many years. Yeah. So I think that there's a huge change and in fairness to the construction industry, they are trying to change that. Um, and you know, are, is there more awareness, do you think, um, Sarah, about sort of things like language or banter on those sites without being too stereotypical? But we can kind of imagine the kind of language that's used and stuff. And, you know, is there more calling out of that kind of thing now, do you think? Uh, there is definitely. I think and, and many, many of the main contractors, many of the main companies, you know, they're uh, obviously getting involved in D&I and they're definitely getting involved in diversity and inclusion and they're they're um, they're starting to create policies, but they're also living those policies in a lot of cases. I mean, I know uh, only 12 months ago I was contacted by a main contractor here in Ireland about the fact that they had reprimanded some subcontractors, um, you know, on site for being rather abusive to a trans woman who happened to be passing by. OK. Um, and, and they were looking for then for me to go in and do some talks around uh, you know, um, knowledge and information around trans issues. And I think they are taking those steps. And as I said, you know, construction industry, uh, you know, they're about to um, launch uh, a campaign over the next number of months uh, and to get com- companies to sign up to um, a campaign that, that, that uh, clearly uh, speaks to uh, diversity and inclusion. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for taking the time and best of luck and have, hope you have a great time this weekend in your sort of non-official capacity in a way to enjoy it a bit more even. No problem, Roshan. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, it's so Sarah. good to talk to you again. Take care. Claude, Sarah mentioned some issues there because mm-hmm. everything's not always rosy and in any community there's internal conflicts. I mean, she's talked about commercialism to one yeah. point. What, what kind of feedback are you getting this year? So it is always a struggle in the community. This year parade is looking like we're going to have 100,000 people and yeah and although there is there is a joy to having a community come together there is also a responsibility for us as organisers to ensure that it's safe and accessible and family friendly and that you know we're all not just running down the street together um, and hoping that we all get in the right direction we have to ensure that there are um, um, even traffic management plans in place that everybody is able to have a safe event so there's always going to be a bit of a balancing act. I think um, what we've tried to do this year is if you watch the parade, you'll see that all of the community groups are front and centre and anybody who has more of a corporate interest is in the back half of the parade. So we're listening to the community and doing what we can to kind of balance those two. It's never going to be perfect, 
our hope is that in the next year, between now and next year's festival, we'll have more opportunity to engage with our stakeholders. For all of our history, we've been entirely volunteer-led. And in the last three years, we've gone from that model to having three part-time staff members, which is massive for us, but obviously isn't a lot if you have 100,000 people to take care of during a festival week. So we are learning on our feet and we're always open to criticism and feedback. And like that last year, a lot of people said that they wanted to be on O'Connell Street. We heard them, we moved. Um, A lot of people said that they wanted more community presence. We heard them, we've tried to change that. Same with accessibility. We're always welcome to hear that and do what we can, but there will be growing pains. I mean, it is, it's it's kind of an irony in a way, given, you know, the struggle and the bad things that have happened over the years, that there's so many corporates clamouring mm. to be part of Pride. Like, it, it's trendy, is yeah. what it is. It seems to, it's, it's reached some kind of tipping point. Is there mixed feelings about that too? Does it, do, is there disgruntled people about that aspect? There are some people that are disgruntled by it. What we see internally is that a lot of the corporates that do get involved with us, it's actually the LGBT networks within a corporation that decide to spend their fund that they would have to actually engage in Pride and give money to other charities. So um, the last thing you want to do is to see a group of people that are walking together in allyship and in representation of where they work because they're proud of their careers being ousted for any reason. We feel like everybody should be welcome. So it is trying to just get that balance right, I think, you know, and there will be there will be a debrief after this year's festival and the opportunity to learn about how we can move forward with that. Yeah, I mean, it's a big job for you. Will you be able to enjoy it at all? Um, I think it's kind of like being a mom at Christmas, you know, like <laughs> I'll, I'll sit down afterwards and have a shandy and hope that they were all happy. Um, it's, it's kind of what it feels like, yeah. Yeah, um, just on some good news, because there's been a lot of talk about, uh, especially in the trans community and in England, a lot of very depressing stuff from our point of view in Ireland, where things have, like the, you talk about the Gender Recognition Act and a lot of things that have gone very seamlessly here. But in England, there seems to be a lot of um, transphobia and all those kind of things. But some good news I just saw on um, Twitter that Noah Halpin, a young trans man, has just reached his, um, he's was crowdfunding for his top surgery. Yeah. Um, and he's got that, which is wonderful. So this, how do you look over in England and see where we are here? Are we different? Are we kind of leading the way in terms of more inclusion and kindness, I suppose? Yeah, I, I find the what's happening in England so shocking because, and, and maybe I'm naive in this respect. My first job when I worked, my first grown-up job was in Tenny, the Transgender Equality Network. And, um, and I have seen transphobia in different forms over the years, but nothing like the organised transphobia that I've seen in the UK. And I feel like perhaps it's because we're so small that everybody knows everybody. You can have intimate conversations and you can discover your own biases much earlier on here, I think. We don't have, nobody has the opportunity to split. People are stuck working together and then we, we have to have <laughs> chats. True. And I think it's accidental intersectionality because we're a tiny, tiny group of people that are doing the activism work. Um which is great. Um, it does mean burnout's a lot higher, but it means people are forced to be sounder, I think. Um, so whether or not that's true, that's how I view it in Ireland. OK, well, enjoy your shanty. Enjoy so pride. Enjoy <laughs> being the mammy. Well, I'm sure there's a few mammies and daddies there in charge. Um, it sounds like it's going to be a really wonderful weekend and well done on all your work. Uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our guests, Clodagh Leonard, Sarah Phillips, Ruth Ann Cunningham and Kitty Holland. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. And we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. 